hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. I'm super excited to bring you this episode of the show in which I'm going to interview Mr. Bob Quinn. Bob is a real-life organic farmer and the author of the brand new book, Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and healthy food, which is available now everywhere you buy books for pre-order. Over the next hour, you're going to discover how our produce has become nutritionally depleted over time and what you can do about it, why organic matters, not just nutritionally, but from a taste standpoint, the meaning of regenerative agriculture, and why why we should all be rushing to support it, why nearly all grain in the modern diet is processed grain, and why ancient grain may be a better alternative, and so much more. This episode of The Genius Life is powered by Lion's Mane Mushroom Coffee from my friends at Four Sigmatic. Not only is their coffee organic, it tastes great. And there's no easier way to integrate medicinal mushrooms into your day than their all-in-one packets, which combine medicinal mushrooms like chaga, lion's mane, and an adaptogen known as wild rhodiola. In my own end-of-one anecdotal experience with this brand of brew, I personally find that I could drink more of it before I ever experience those jitters that are commonly associated with excessive caffeine consumption. Usually I'll begin my day with a packet or two, and then sometime in the early afternoon, I will add another pack to the mix. Now, obviously, this is not the only type of coffee that I drink, but it's definitely something that I really like and appreciate. And if you'd like to give Lion's Mane Mushroom Coffee a try, all you got to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max, and you'll get to save 15% off of that and everything else on their website. Head over, feel free to peruse, get down with medicinal mushrooms, and tell them Max sent you. All right, guys, we're just seconds away from my interview with Farmer Bob. This is a really good chat. I'm excited for you to listen to it. But before we get into it, please take a moment to support the Genius Life. Go to iTunes or wherever you are listening to the show and leave a rating and review. I read all of them, like this one from BVBBALL23. They said, Max is a terrific interviewer and has some awesome guests. Love his non-dogmatic approach to health and wellness, and his book is terrific. About time to get together with the Mind Pump Boys again. Love that dynamic. Well, BVBALL23, I got good news for you. I'm actually set to head up to San Jose and record with them in about two weeks' time. The other way that you could support The Genius Live is by spreading the word about it on social media. Take a screen grab, post it up on your Instagram stories, tweet a link to it, tag me. Nothing gathers a crowd like a crowd, and helping me to grow this show is only going to allow me to get better and better guests so that I can continue to bring the best content possible week after week. And finally, the third way that you could support this podcast, I hope I'm not overwhelming you, is by going to my website at maxlugavere.com and by leaving your name and email address so that I can add you to my newsletter, which I only send out about once a week, if that. And every email I send is explicitly designed to improve your life in at least one way. So please head over to maxlugavere.com, Add your first and last name and your email address, and we will be in touch. All right, guys, without further ado, I'm excited to welcome Farmer Bob to The Genius Life. If you want to learn more, you can check out his brand new book, Grain by Grain, which is available now for pre-order everywhere books are sold. Here we go. We're rolling. Already. Already, okay. yeah. Well, I was going to take you on a little trip to Montana before we started, but... Um, that, I've heard wonderful things about Montana. I've never been. Well, here's my farm. That's your farm. That's the uh, signpost that says, you see, Kamut Lane. That's where I live. Wow. How many acres is that? 4,000. 4,000 acres? Well, it's not all in the picture, of course. Of course, I mean, of course not. But that's, but that's how big the farm is, yeah. Wow. And so the next, this is facing west, getting close to sunset with a storm coming. And the next one, can you do the next one? So that's facing north from my um, balcony where I have off my office. I 
you have to go out and stay sane once in a while. Well, describe it for listeners because they obviously can't see what, what we're seeing. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're looking at the prairies of north central Montana. And the way you can tell it's Montana and not Kansas in this part of the prairie because it's quite flat is we have isolated mountain ranges. And the one you can see um, in the foreground is the Bear Palm Mountains. They're about three miles from me. And directly to the north, about 60 miles, is the Canadian border. And we are near the junction of Alberta and Saskatchewan, so we're just south of that border. Wow. Um, but from this, uh, we're, we're built on a little hill. Our homestead is built on a little hill. Um, and we have, the farm is laid out in just about one piece of about 4,000 acres. It goes three miles to the north from us, half mile to the south, about a mile and a half to the west. What kinds of things are you, uh, are you growing or raising? I'm glad you asked that question. So on our, uh, this is a little, uh, I'm preparing this, not, this one for you, but it has some stuff in there I thought you might be interested in. This is for my book tour talk. Okay. And uh, so just, you can get, we're talking about factories and factories. This is, so this is another shot of the farm that's looking west, south, uh, wow. southwest. Um, it was some of my experiments in the foreground of different wheats that were growing and then the, um, in the, in the background, you see a swather um, cutting down alfalfa and grass, getting ready to bale it. And you see a bale or two in the... Alfalfa as in like alfalfa sprouts? Alfalfa hay. Alfalfa hay. For, for organic dairy cows. Wow. That we sell to Organic Valley, actually. Huh. Oh, cool. shipped out to Oregon. Yeah. They make pasture-raised dairy. Do they right. not? Right. Yeah. But in the wintertime... Uh, or there's no pastures in some places right? Uh, where they have snow, then they have to feed them, and can they feed them organic hay. So can you explain, because I know this confused me when I first discovered that past, the term pasture-raised is sort of like free-range in terms of chicken, meaning it's, you know, it doesn't guarantee 100, 365 days year-round of being you know, grass-fed, correct? Right. Well, normally, it depends on where you're at. Of course, in Montana, we wouldn't, chickens wouldn't survive outside right. in the wintertime. Um, so the rules are supposed to have allowed for access to pasture. Mm. And uh, if they say pasture raised on the eggs or something like that, that's normally what they're talking about. Mm. If There's also the term free range, which is a, uh, means they also have access. And so there's, a little, there's some confusion with all that. Mm. Um, but primarily we're talking about um, seasonal grazing yeah. and seasonal access. And if there's not... It's not the season for it, then it's, of course, yeah. allowed for shelter. But um, we're very unhappy if people um, take advantage of, of those things and really don't follow the rules of giving them any pasture at all, letting them look out a window and, yeah. or being on a porch and calling it pasture. That's, That's not cool. No. Um, so if you have a question, just ask. Yeah. Ask the manufacturer, the farmer, where it's coming from, and, and have their own definitions. And that's what I try to do because this is – I'm not into chickens uh, except for our own use. We have a small uh, flock for our own, hmm. our own use and eggs and, and meat. And um, the same with cows. Um, there's a, f a few. So I'm not in it commercially. We don't sell them out in the marketplace. Hmm. So what – so you're growing wheat. You're growing – Yeah. Uh, we have a nine-year rotation, actually, um, and what we try to do is have every other year to be a soil-building year, and um, so this uh, is our rotation, and I can describe it for for the folks. We have 
every other year, as I've mentioned, is a crop which regenerates the soil. It's not harvested. It's, it's um, uh, cultivated down into mm. the soil, and it actually feeds the soil wow. instead of using chemical fertilizers. So we rotate those along with our cash crops. Um, our cash crops are like winter wheat, uh, chemical coruscant spring wheat, uh, barley, um, high leg safflower, which is the best kind of oil for your heart. And it's, um, we, we crush that right on the farm. And, uh, okay, quali- uh, qual- hay. qualify that statement. Why is hyaluronic safflower, in your view, good for the heart? Just ah, for the same reason that um, olive oil is good for it. So this is an oil. We can't grow olives in Montana, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Yeah. And so what we can grow <clears throat> is something that's as good or even better than olive oil, and that's high oleic safflower, which is a big, it's a monosaturated uh, fat. Um, and very stable. It's the best kind of oil for high temperature cooking, and um, uh, just as and it's about seventy-five to eighty percent oleic acid, Got it. which is a little bit higher than the average olive. Got it. So all extra virgin olive oil. I mean, my listeners know that I'm a, I'm a big fan of extra virgin olive oil, and what and the primary fat in it is oleic acid. Right. So high oleic safflower oil is basically safflower oil that has a higher proportion of monounsaturated oleic. Acid. That's correct. As opposed to a polyunsaturated, right. you know, linoleic. Like linoleic. Yeah. So if you're buying it in the store, uh, look for high oleic sapphire. If you're going to buy sapphire oil, the, the, the linoleic is coming from sapphire that's really, it should go to birdseed. That's hmm. what it's best for. <laughs> and it's not best for human consumption, but the high oleic certainly is. Now, is that, is it made high oleic sort of in the production process or is it a different strain of the safflower? Like it's been bred. So bread, a good friend of mine in eastern Montana uh, had a goal to create a uh, vegetable oil that we could grow in the, on the plains of, of, the, of, the great plain, of the northern Great Plains uh, that was as good as olive oil. And that was his goal. And it took him about 25 years wow. of crossing and looking for, for um, plants and um, subjects all over the world that he brought back to Montana. And uh, he crossed and, and bred them and tested them. And now he has several strains that are in the same category of the 75 to 80% oleic acid. That's amazing. Yeah, it's quite exciting. And I know there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of information out there about it, but if you look in the stores, you can find it in the health food stores. Hmm. Uh, it's becoming more common. Um, he finished his work on this probably 10 or 15 years ago when I was first introduced to it. Wow, that's amazing. I love what you said uh, before our little tangent about how you, you know, every, every year or every, every other year you, you, uh, you rebuild the soil, essentially. Right, right. So... With organic agriculture, we are focusing on feeding the soil and nourishing this life in the soil as compared to um, chemical agriculture, which focuses on feeding the plants and just providing to the plants what they need and perhaps putting it on top of the soil. But uh, the soil to them is something that holds the plants so they don't fall down or get away. But um, they're they're thinking they can um, provide the plant with everything it needs rather than depending on the life in the soil. And that's just opposite of the, of the thought with uh, organic agriculture. And that's to really maximize yield more than anything else, correct? You mean with a chemical, with chemical system? Yeah. Yes. And I, th- I look at it as an industrial model. So everything is controlled. The inputs are all controlled. Their, their goal is to have uniform output. So everything is the same and, and predictable. And the main goal is high yields, of course. Wow. So talk to me about the soil then. Like what is... I mean, I hear a lot about the microbiome of the soil and like nitrogen, which I don't know anything about, you know, soil <laughs> well, and nitrogen. Well, um, 
I, I compare the microbiome of the soil with the microbiome of your gut. You know, we don't, uh, in polite company, we didn't talk about that much uh, in the past, but now we're really understanding how important it is. And there's a lot of talk about that. Um, if our gut microbiome is healthy, we're going to be healthy. And it has a very important process or a, a function to break down the food that you eat into, and, and also make its own compounds from that, which are healthy for the body. The soil has almost exactly the same uh, function with its microbiome. It takes what is deposited on top of the soil or even in the soil with roots and breaks that down and recycles it and puts it into um, compounds that the plants recognize and use and take up and, and build their own um, uh, biomass. Yeah. And, and in the end, uh, the crops that we eat, the seeds that we eat, or the, the grains or everything, they're all coming from the life of the soil if, if, to be most beneficial to us and most nu uh, nurturing to us. It's amazing. And so that's really what regenerative agriculture is. It's like It it's really is. It's looking at the farm as a living organism rather than a factory uh, that's controlled with inputs and outputs and, and trying to um, control everything and, and focus on um, everything, the machinery, in the terms of a machinery mentality where the organic uh, farm is really focusing on the life of the soil and a, and a, um, a living, breathing organism. I look at my farm as not a factory, but it's a living organism. And it's just a microcosm of the whole earth, which is also a living and breathing organism. That's, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And the, the, the consequences of, you know, the, the chemical-based agriculture really, I mean, it's to the detriment of our nutrition I mean, just, you know, coming back to us. Eventually. When you have something that's artificially grown, um, it's never as nutritious as something that's coming from a, a really a living, viable, um, regenerative system. Mm. Now, we've done a little bit of experiments um, comparing our organic um, crops, which have been grown in fields that have been organic for 25 or 30 years, compared to my neighbor across the road, which he's generously enough let me do some experimenting on his farm too, and he just does his chemical um, agriculture the way he normally does, and then we grow the same crops on both sides of the road, and we analyze them, and we're, we're, there's um, subtle differences and also measurable differences, and important measurable differences are the differences in polyphenols, for example, and we've seen and heard research in fruits and vegetables, especially strawberries starting out several years ago. But there's been very little work done on, on grains. No one thought about this in polyphenols and grains. But the research that we've done, we've discovered there's quite a significant contribution from polyphenols. And actually the aromas, the flavors that come from bread that you, from particularly heritage wheats and whatnot, are really due to the polyphenols. And the polyphenols are very strong antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. And we have discovered or learned that they are very closely linked to health then. So health is also linked to flavors and aromas. So naturally, we have a way to distinguish really high-quality um, nutrition by what it smells like and tastes like. Um, if, we're, if we're eating food, real food and not stuff that's just doctored up by the food chemist to make it taste good and smell good, <laughs> but it's coming out of a bottle. I find when I buy super high quality produce like organic tomatoes for example mm -hmm. I, I personally find that it tastes better mm -hmm. but that could be like a placebo effect do you find that that organic tastes better is that a common uh that's probably more commonly um spoken by our customers than any other thing that's the wow. first thing that they say wow. normally and um, we've taken that one step forward with 
or further with um, looking at ancient wheats compared to what we've done with modern wheat mm. because the flavors that come out of ancient wheat are much more pronounced and different than than modern than, than modern wheat compared to ancient wheat and, and you have the same with all kinds of foods that have been bred i think max the, th the key is if we have spent a lot of effort to breed anything tomato or whatever peppers or what only looking at one goal and that's yield and we achieve that, we've we doubled the yield, or we've done something spectacular, you can bet your bottom dollar that something's been lost along the way. And a lot of times what's been lost are the flavors and aromas. And they're really important when you understand that those are linked to very important health-producing compounds. And so if you take that away, um, you start to have trouble. And wheat's been a prime example. I mean, 20% of people can't eat it anymore. But for the ancient and heritage wheats, most of them can and so we've spent a lot of time and effort trying to understand that. And, and the, one of the biggest differences has been the difference in anti-inflammatory properties. So modern wheat, as we've seen and we showed that in our research, causes inflammation, small levels, but it's still there, and which is a, aggravates chronic disease of all kinds. And anti-inflammatory properties um, give some relief to chronic disease. And we've seen 30 to 50% difference between modern wheat and our ancient wheat in our studies that we've done. That's never been reported before. And it starts to open up a little window of understanding about how we have manipulated different foods for one purpose, and that was to make them cheap and in great abundance, which those two things tie together. And by, by doing so, we've left behind very important health-promoting um, properties. And now we have something that's not very nutritious. Yeah, I mean, I love in the book, in, in your book, um, grain by grain, you cite Don Davis at the University of Texas, who basically did this, you know, analysis looking at nutritional data for produce over a 50-year span. I believe it was between 1950 and 1999. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a marked reduction for some, for some nutrients mm -hmm. in the produce just over that 50-year window due to the, you know, the chemical agriculture, the fact that, you know, we're the microbiome, the nutri you know, the nitrogen loss in the soil. Mm -hmm. So our food has become less nutritious. It's become diluted. And yes. so and I and I can appreciate that it's also probably done that to the flavor as well. Yes. Yes, that's true. And if you compound that with plants that are bred for high yield that are 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 less nutritious, then you've compounded the problem. So in my mind, there's there's three areas that are really important. It's not just the farm, it's not just the plants, and it's not just processing it's really a combination of all three hmm. and giving wheat as an example i've already told you about the importance of having regenerative organic agriculture starting with the right seed but then when you get to the bakery um, <clears throat> now it's very common for modern bakers to use fast rising yeast which rises the bread so fast that the yeast has no time to pre-digest any of the gluten in wow it. if that if you compare that to sourdough in the extreme case of 24 hours of of uh, sourdough fermentation will destroy 97% of all the gluten Seriously? in that flour. Wow. And so people who had trouble with gluten, if they went back to sourdough with long fermentations, not just, you know, an hour and a half or something, but in 24 hours it's been shown that um, over 95%, 96%, 97% of the gluten is gone and it's pre-digested. So when you eat that bread, 
it's very easy for you to finish the digestion process because most of it's already been done and, and started at least for you in a great deal. The starch has been broken down. Um, the proteins have all been digested and reduced in size. And so it's a very different product than something you put in your mouth that's just gone through the bakery and with 15 or 20 minutes of rising. That's amazing. So if you have, if you have celiac disease, you still want to avoid sourdough bread. But if you are you know, gluten sensitive, you're saying, so sourdough bread is basically the best it's, option it, it for you. It adds a great deal. So there's three things that can add to that. Starting with the right seed and, and growing it properly uh, with organic um, regenerative properties and then processing it in a way that it doesn't aggravate um, as existing problem. Celiac disease accounts for about 1% of the population, but over 20% say they have trouble with all kinds of difficulties from bloating to cramps to whatever, and eating wheat. And most of those could be alleviated by the right seed, the right um, type of farming, and certainly the right processing makes a big, big difference. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, I know a lot, a lot of my listeners are, you know, many of them avoid wheat, you know, some are on paleo diets and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But, um, but that's really good to know. Well, right, because it gives them another opportunity. So, and it's very easy to check for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, we use sourdough all the time. I make sourdough pancakes um, that's um, fermented overnight and it's very easy and they're very tasty and it's and it, uh, be e- easy to try. I do it on the weekend if you got any listeners <laughs> yeah. that uh, might want to experiment. I don't exper- recommend experimenting during weekdays or work days, but um, on weekends, uh, have a, if they have trouble with um, wheat, have them try ancient grains or heritage wheats. Make sure that they're pure and they're not just you know a label. Mm-hmm. And and then make sourdough instead of um, yeasted uh, over longer longer fermentations and mm-hmm. see how it works. Many of them will have success. What are some of the uh, types of ancient grains that there are? Well, the most common ones um, are certainly, and the ones that have been on the market in this country the longest, are spelt. Um, and a little less um, known are einkorn and emmer. Emmer is sometimes called farro, uh, which is an Italian reference to it. And then we've been working with the uh, Khorasan, um grain for about 30 years. Wow. And um, it's, most, it's more available in, in Italy than it is here, but you can find it in health food stores. But any of those, most of the f- f- friends and people that I've talked to um, that have trouble with meat, most of them can eat any of those. And some of them can even eat heritage grains that were popular 150 years ago when the homesteaders first came across the prairies. They have also not been changed much. They're a little harder to find, and uh, you can find them in some niche, niche bakeries. Um, but if, if you do some experimenting um, and are focusing on ancient or, or heritage weeds, you probably can have uh, much more success than you've had in the past just going to the regular supermarket. Wow. Talk to me about pesticides. Because pesticides are usually you know, what comes to mind when people talk about the differences between conventional versus organic. Okay. Have you seen the morning paper? I have not, no. Well. <laughs> oh, it's right here in front of us. Look at yeah. that. Headline says... Weed killer found in wine and beer. No way. And so they're talking about glyphosate um, because um, glyphosate is so um, widespread, not only um, where it's applied, but now in the waterways and, and even in the rain. And that article talks about it being in the rain. We've done experiments in our area. Three years ago, we found it in the rain. So we've been trying to work on things that we can do to um, give us some 
alternatives to that and, and trying to figure out what to do, but um, which we really haven't found an easy answer. The easy answer, of course, is stop using it. Um, but the, um, the agricultural, agricultural industrial complex is really focusing on uh, herbicides as one of the key components of their whole system. Hmm. And so they fight this tooth and nail and they hate articles, articles like this, but a lot of people don't want, I don't know anybody that wants to eat pesticides, uh, even if they're said to be safe, which is, they're all poisons at some level to, to living organisms. So it's hard to, for me, to accept the, um, accept the hype or the PR that says they're safe. Mm -hmm. So what we've done and seen over the past years since you know, Silent Spring uh, kind of exposed DDT and, that, uh, and the trouble with that and it was finally banned, I think there'll come a day when we'll look back on this period uh, as the great chemical experiment and wonder why it took so long to end it. Once the evidence started showing up that it was causing um, health problems uh, for many farmers, uh, the herbicides no longer work uh, completely because of, of resistant weeds now, weeds that are resistant to those herbicides. Uh, most farmers are having trouble paying the high cost of, of herbicides, when, especially when what they're selling is selling for such low cost because they're doing commodities instead of food. Um, and it's creating a, um, a narrowing uh, margin of, of profit for these farmers so that many are going out of business. Hmm. And there's fewer and fewer all the time. That's unfortunate. Very. Because I think a conversion to organic, and many more of my f neighbors are even looking at that, uh, is the is much better solution to this. I would hope to see that the next generation will finally go chemical free, but the conversion to organic will take a little bit longer because research lags behind and, um, and, and adopt, ad ad adoption of new um, systems also lags behind. Yeah. How can listeners support like the cause? I mean, is it is it just buying organic? Is it? That's the most direct way to support it. Right. That's a pull through. Right now, um, organic sales in this country are about five percent of the total, or a little bit more. Hmm. Um, and if you project that out thirty years at a ten percent growth rate in thirty years, which is one generation, hundred organic would be a hundred percent. Meanwhile, the farms are only 1%. Wow. And so we're lagging behind. We're importing a lot of stuff that we could grow ourselves here, which is, um, I think, a, a, a loss because that could be helping, those premiums could be helping um, farmers um, survive and, and prosper. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a lag. So if we have, we have to convert the farms about 15% a year to get to the 100% in the same generation of 30 years. Yeah. But it's not unreasonable. It's not huge, huge increments. Right now, um, research at USDA is still pretty close to the farm level of about 1%. If you look at all the agricultural research, while, the, as I mentioned earlier, the um, rate of sales for organic goods are nearly 5%. Mm. And so the question I always ask when I go to Washington, why can't we at least have the, the research actually should be ahead of where we're going, not behind, but why can't we at least as a, an intermediate goal catch up to where we are and at least stay where we are and if we had that amount of research focused on solving um, problems of perennial weeds and some of the other difficulties and challenges that come with organic agriculture, we would have the kind of success that we've had temporarily 
um, to prop up chemical agriculture. Hmm. What about for people that are listening that want to support, they want to feed organic versus conventional to their families, but mm -hmm. they maybe can't afford it? Okay, that's a really good question, Max. Um, there's two, two answers I have for that. For those who really can't afford it, they're really on a really low budget, then I would suggest to them buy low down on the, um, on the totem pole as far as, as, as basic foods. Um, buy grains and seeds that are, that are in the bulk bin. Um, our, our grain, for example, is a very expensive grain that probably sells for, oh, I don't know, over a dollar a pound or a dollar and a half a pound. That's, that's expensive. But if you put that into a frozen entree, now you have a very expensive meal, but it's already prepared. Hmm. If you buy that grain and you take it home and you, and you um, put it through a grinder and make porridge out of it, you can feed a family of four for 50 cents. Hmm. And I don't know any place you can go and buy a meal for 50 cents for a family of four. Hmm. And that's the main entree, you might say, if it's hot cereal in the wintertime, it's, it's all you need for breakfast. Hmm. And, uh, and yet that's very affordable. Um, the same with a lot of um, fruits and vegetables. You buy them in season. Um, you can can. You can, you can uh, do other things to preserve them. Um, for when they're out of season, they may be more expensive. Buy them when they're locally available. Um, there's very things that you can watch. And I think it's better that we eat in season anyway. We've kind of gone away from that, thinking we need to have watermelon 12 months a year. This is really, oh, at least in Montana, our watermelon doesn't taste too good in December. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's coming from who knows where. And um, it's much better if we can eat it locally grown, even if that window of enjoyment is only for a few weeks, six or eight weeks six weeks or so. Um, it's still a treat we look forward to all year round and people uh, take what's, what's ready out of their gardens or out of the, um, what's coming into the stores locally and they can um, preserve those things to can them or freeze them or whatnot and save them for when they're not so available. I'm, I'm trying now, I've, I've, I've downsized my farm from 4,000 acres down to four because I've rented out everything as of a year ago mm. in April, it'll be a year coming up in April, to um, people who work for me and I trained for six years of how to farm organically and I rented everything to them, sold them my machinery and now it's their turn. It's the next generation. I had my turn and I had a great time and now hopefully they can build on what I was able to um, do on my farm and take it through their generation and support their families. So what's, with what's left, I'm doing experiments with... Um, dryland vegetables, which they say can't be done in Montana, but we're doing it <laughs> with different little different tricks. I'm experimenting with the orchard, small orchard, seeing what can survive 35 and 40 below zero winters, um, and trying to grow as much of my food as I can, which I find not only a great satisfaction, but also a, a lot of fun. And, uh, and it tastes delicious, too. Um, it's not the great variety, but for I do a lot of storage vegetables, so I have a big root cellar for all the root crops and potatoes and beets and turnips, that sort of thing. And then I store my winter squash in my garage in a, in a cupboard, and onions and, and garlic can be stored the same way. Wow. So there's a lot of fresh vegetables I can eat through the winter that are storage vegetables. Um, the potatoes last in the root cellar till July when the next crop is starting to to be harvested. Wow. So some, and winter squash the same way. Some crops I can store all year round or eat all year round, eating it fresh out of the garden until it's time for freeze up and then I harvest them and they can be stored all winter. Um, that's one way that you can also reduce is 
participate, reduce your farm or your grocery bills, participate in, in local gardens. If there's, and even in inner cities, I know that it's becoming more and more popular. And if you have any place at all in your backyard, it's certainly um, a place to start. I couldn't agree more. There's good research showing that when you, you know, grow, uh, when you engage children in the growing yeah. of the vegetables, they're more inclined to eat them. That's right. That's right, because they see where they come from, and they have a, a little skin in the game, you yeah. might say. <laughs> it's just fun and gratifying. I mean, I live in New York City, so I don't have a lot of space. The yeah. most that I can grow are, which I do grow, broccoli sprouts, oh, yeah. which you can grow in a jar. So that's basically okay. how much well, space we have in New York. Yeah, it's a star, <laughs> right? But if you have a window. You have a window, right? Yes, I have okay. a window. Well, that will be fine. I have a window. I have a jar of broccoli sprouts, and I have a money tree. Okay, a money tree. <laughs> a money tree. Okay, I need to hear more about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is it organic? It, uh, somebody bought it for me. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's some, I don't know. I actually don't even know what it is beyond that. It's just, I call it a money tree. That's oh, okay. Called. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, that sounds interesting. But what I'm really thrilled about are more and more schools that are starting school gardens. And um, actually, some of them are taking all the way to the, to the, um, lunch, uh, the lunch counter in their school. And it's the very same thing you mentioned when people, kids that turned up their nose at beets for years and they, and they have them on their plate knowing that they came from the garden that they just picked that morning. Mm-hmm. That makes a big difference. Yeah. I think also, and something that I advocate a lot for is, um, you know, I was very lucky when my, when my mom would make vegetables for me growing up, she would season them. She would put, you know, salt and, and butter. Although at the time we probably weren't using butter or we using that, that margarine stuff. But, uh, but, you know, I think one of the things that you really want to do is make them taste good. Vegetables can yes, taste amazing yes, if yes. you cook them the right way. Yes. So let me give you a little, one of my favorites on that. So we have beets. We, we can grow beets very easily and store them in the root cellar. And one of my favorite dishes with beets is just to cube them in pretty large cubes and uh, put a little oil and salt on them and put them in the oven and roast them at 425 degrees for mm. about an hour. And they caramelize around the edges. You don't want to burn them, but they start to go that direction. Uh, just as they're well done and caramelized, you take them out and they're just fantastic. And it's so simple and so cheap and so delicious and so nutritious. Oh man, sounds good. Mouth is watering just, just hearing you describe them. I want to go back just quickly to, um, you were talking about the value of eating seasonally, which I, I love. I think that's, that's amazing. But one thing that I realized relatively recently is that it's not common knowledge as to what's seasonal and when. Like it's, and it's not for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was having a conversation and I was like, I have no idea what is in season right now. Well, Maybe it's because I'm a city kid, but. Well, but and it, and the reason why most people don't know that because everything is in the grocery store 12 months a year. Right. So how are you ever going to learn what's in season? Right. When I first grew, when I was growing up, um, our peaches came from California in uh, starting in mid to late July and they were in a in a wooden box double wrapped and you could set them on your counter and within a few days they would ripen to a delicious yummy peach that season lasted about eight to ten weeks Hmm. and that was it the watermelon came into Montana in time for the 4th of July. Hmm. And that was our watermelon season from 4th of July on through the middle of August. Hmm. So we could see, you could see what was coming in the stores. Now things come in the stores 12 months of the year. Yeah. And, but they don't taste the same. Even in season, they're not tasting as good as they used to hmm. taste when they were in season because a lot of them are picked green and shipped over long, on long distances. Yeah. Um, if you can get 
local stuff, uh, then you can see what's in season. I, if people really want to know what's in season, go to the local um, um, uh, farmer's market. Yeah. Then you can see what's in season because the farmers are there with fresh picked stuff. And I know there's a great one here in New York because I've been several times. I have a good friend that works there at, um, at Union Square. And, um, and that's where you'll find. Uh, you can re-educate yourself about what seasonality looks like and also enjoy the freshness of local, fresh, and, and, and uh, recently picked um, produce. Oh, man. It's so great picking your own. It's yes. Just, yeah. yeah. I, love, I love apple season. So it's always going to be cheaper and it's going to taste the best, be the best for you when you buy seasonally. Some, uh, you know, seasonally tethered produce, I guess, like apples are mm-hmm. fall, you know, like citrus in the winter. Mm-hmm. Are those like generally yeah. considered true? I don't know what I'm talking about in this regard. You're the farmer. <laughs> but Well, we're a long way from citrus in Montana. <laughs> okay. Okay. But we do have apples. You've got apples. All right. Yeah. It's good to know. Watermelon in the, in the summer. Yes, I've experimented with that. You know, um... The climate change is not all bad. Now we can grow watermelon in Montana. So wow. I tell my friends it's not all bad. Although that's just a bad joke. Silver linings. It is bad, <laughs> actually, because it's not only coming with the change in the climate getting warmer. Hmm. Uh, what we're seeing is our rains are ending sooner, and it's getting hotter in the summer sooner than it used to. That's putting some of our crops um, that are uh, spring-seeded into higher and higher risk. But it also is enabling us to um, experiment with crops that we haven't really been able to before. Uh, Farmers really don't have the luxury to debate climate change. We have to actually respond to it because it's already, we already see it. Wow. And uh, so we have to figure out how can we adapt because we're certainly not going to be changing it right away because... Although another thing, Max, about organic agriculture is it probably holds the key to change of climate because it has more potential for carbon sequestration than any other made-up project you could imagine. Just putting that carbon back in the soil where it belongs and um, eliminating some of the uh, grievous um, contributions of agriculture such as chemical um, fertilizer production hmm. is one of the biggest contributors for organic um, or for uh, chemical agricultural contribution to climate change. Wow. And where does animal husbandry fit into the, to the, to the equation? Do you have animals on your farm? Yes. So we're not not a lot of animals because it's mostly um, grain production, but I think a clue to um, regenerative organic agriculture, Max, is to look at what the native prairie or woods or wherever you live, look at what is out there before any, before man did anything to it, and then try to mimic that. And the closer you could mimic the natural conditions, the closer you're going to be to an organic regenerative system that can go on um, perpetually. In our area on the, on the Northern Great Plains, the, animals, the big animal we had on the prairie was a buffalo. Hmm. The buffalo are all gone. So we can mimic that with cattle. Um, there are sp- many smaller animals like the bear, um, like um, uh, antelope and deer, uh, and we can mimic those with sheep and goats and other things too that are domesticated that we can add to part of the farm system. So if you have a whole farm system, uh, the best best farm system incorporates animals because they were part of the the natural landscape and had a function in the beginning. Um, 
And that's what we try to do more or less. We're trying to focus on that a little bit more now with intensive grazing rotations around our green manure cropping years. So when we're, we've, instead of just plowing down our, our, our um, green manure crops, we would experimenting with grazing them down and having intensive grazing of the animals that then um, um, uh, dump their, their urine and their, uh, their manure on the soil, and it's feeding the soil. That's really a benefit to the organisms living in the soil. Wow. And it really, really um, helps um, promote the health and vitality of that soil and the soil organisms that live there. I love that. Farmer Bob, thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for taking the time to chat with me. So before I get to the last question of the show that I ask every guest, where can listeners connect with you, maybe it's social media. You just released this book. It's called Grain by Grain. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. Super, super interesting. Um, and how can listeners support? Well, as far as the connection, we have, you can go to our Instagram at uh, uh, Bob Quinn Organic Farmer and uh, have a blog there too. Um, and the, the, the connections to the books are there. They can order it online. You can go to your favorite bookstore. It's going to be released on Tuesday, March 5th. After that point, it will be available everywhere. Um, you can pre-order now, but um, it's available next Tuesday. The, as far as supporting the whole concept, which the book outlines the trouble we're in, and then, but focuses more on solutions. Love that. And that's the whole idea. And it's not written to be um, sold only to the choir. We're writing it for people who are really interested um, in doing something different and maybe not knowing where to start. And what I suggest in starting is just buying one more thing organic every time they go to the store. It's not a big thing, but if you multiply that over, over the whole region or country, it adds up into a big effect. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the environmental working group's dirty dozen list? Is that, do you believe in that, you know, the, the research that underlies that? Par you know what I'm talking about? No, what's the dirty dozen? You're talking about pesticides? Yeah, basically it's like a list that the environmental working group publishes every year. Where oh. they, they look at um, all the most common produce and they- Oh, you're talking about foods. Foods, they yeah. find it in foods. And they look at pesticide residues and they basically I highlight the 12 that you should avoid that have yep. the highest levels yep. of, of pesticide residues and those are the foods that you should buy organic, the yes. dirty dozen. Yeah, I see. Yes, I, I'm familiar with that. And I think that that's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, but it's not a place to end. <laughs> we really need to evolve in a way that in one generation we can move from uh, chemical contamination and poisoning of our planet to a revitalization, a regeneration, and a uh, revitalization of our soils, therefore our crops, therefore our health. Truer words have not been spoken. Um, so the last question that I ask everybody is a bit more philosophical. Um, Farmer Bob, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? Well, hmm, that's really a good question. You know what I think? If you look around wherever you're at in your environment, of course, I'm a farmer, so I'm out in the country. It's easy for me to look around and see the natural rhythm of things and to see um, the importance of things, to see the interrelationship of things. Everything is connected. We can't ever do one thing in isolation without affecting a whole myriad of other events. Um, I think in our modern life, that's really easy to, to compartmentalize and forget about that. And to a genius life really, I would think, um, recognizes and then responds in the best way to that. 
So I don't want to do anything that sets off a negative reaction, even if it's isolated on my farm, because it ripples out to wherever that my, my food goes or whatever I'm producing goes. And it's a ripple effect because it's, it, does just, it just doesn't stay there. Mm. And if we all did something that was a little bit positive, I think that in the end we'd have a big, a big change. And that's what I'm after. And that's what I try to do is try to see where things fit together, where they fit in, and how we can um, focus on positive change. I love that. Recognize your stature in the vast ecosystem. There's a, you reminded me of one of my favorite lines written by David Mitchell in the book Cloud Atlas, which also became oh, yeah. a movie. I love the movie. Yeah. And it is, you know, there, the, one of the characters is questioning his agency. There's all these forces way larger than him yeah. that, are, uh, that are opposing, you know, his, his agenda in the, in the story. And he's like, I am but one drop in a limitless ocean yeah yet what is any ocean but a multitude of drops that's right i love that yep so thank you again for your time and to thank all you, you guys yeah my pleasure to all you guys out there listening in podcast land as always i value your time and your attention spread the word about this episode of the podcast by taking a screen grab of it maybe highlight your favorite quote from farmer bob or i tag us each on instagram share it on social media that would really help us spread the word about what we're doing here on the genius life and the value of regenerative agriculture which is something that i am uh, definitely a huge was a huge fan of and now i'm even a bigger fan of because of what i just learned from bob so thank you guys i will catch you on the next episode of the genius life peace <laughs>